0: So how's everyone doing? So I was actually going to come up here and I was going to make a, uh, a Super Bowl joke, but then Beth made the Super Bowl joke, so I don't have, I don't have a joke to make. Uh, but I do want to say this, you know, I think that when you come to church, you, uh, there will be people that do everything, and when you get used to people that do everything, you forget that they do everything. And so before I begin, I just want to thank Beth for everything that she's done for me and Shaney and everything she's done for the church. I think Beth is, Beth is such a great example of faithfulness, and I think that at some point she's run every single ministry in this church, maybe even men's ministry, I don't know. I wasn't around for that. But other than men's ministry, I think she's taken care of every other ministry in this church in some way, shape, or form, not necessarily because she wanted to, but because there was a need, and she was faithful to meet that need, so... Thank you, Beth, for everything you've done for me and Shaney, and hopefully everything you'll continue to do for us, even though Shaney doesn 't work for the church anymore. <laughs> so with that, uh, we're going to start. Why don't we go to Romans chapter 10? Now, when, uh, when Pastor Mike and Beth asked me to speak, uh, I was trying to figure out, and I was praying about what I should talk about and uh, I think there's this temptation, especially when you're when you're teaching at Pastor Mike's pulpit and you're teaching it to Pastor Mike's congregation. You want to teach something really, really deep and really, really profound and something that no one's ever heard. Uh, but as I was praying, uh, what what God told me to do was to not try to be profound and and tricky and special or anything like that, but to instead just teach the basic gospel. I think it's easy for us to overcomplicate things and to think that there's all these steps and all these things we have to do to receive from God. But when you read through the Bible, you find that most people in those stories receive uh, a lot easier than we think it should be. So rather than talking about something really deep and confusing and uh, convoluted, I'm just going to share things that most of us already know. I'm going to encourage you in those things uh, because ultimately understanding the simplicity of who God is, is what's going to help you receive the best. I think if, if all you know is that God loves you and nothing else, that's enough for you to have faith to be healed. Because if God loves you, why on earth wouldn't he want you to be healed and to be well and to have your needs met and to be safe? So with that, why don't we start in Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at how simple that is. If you believe something in your heart and if you say it out loud, that's all it takes. You'll be saved. And you see this pattern throughout the Bible. You believe something, you do something. In this case, what you do is you confess what you believe, and then something happens. Most of us have probably read James chapter 2, where it says, faith without works is dead. I think another way that could be translated is, faith without corresponding action doesn't work. What you need is you need to believe something, but not just sit there content with the fact that you believe this thing. But instead, you need to put action to what you believe. You need to put your faith in motion. And only when you put your faith in motion will you receive what God has for you. In Romans chapter 10, the thing that he does, or that he tells us to do, is to believe and to confess. And when you do that thing, when you take that simple action, when you make that confession of faith, you will be saved. You know, that word saved in this verse, I'm, I'm sure you've heard Pastor Mike say this before, but it's the Greek word sozo. And it has five different meanings that we often overlook when we're going through, uh, through our reading. The word sozo means to deliver, to heal, to rescue, to make safe, and to make sound. You know, when most Christians think about salvation, what they think salvation is, is, well, your sins have been forgiven, you've become a Christian, And then years and years and years from now, when you die, you get to go to heaven. That's salvation. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that salvation is being delivered, being healed, being rescued, being made safe, and being made sound. In fact, if you read through the Gospels and the way that this word is used, this word sozo, that means salvation, the way that this word is used throughout scripture, it almost never means having your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die. I jotted down just a couple examples of how this word has been used throughout Scripture. In Mark chapter 5, Jairus's daughter is raised from the dead. And the word that's used to describe her being raised from the dead is sozo. She was saved from death. She was restored back to life. In Mark chapter 10, there's a blind man, and it says that when he met Jesus, Jesus saved his sight. He restored his vision back to him. It doesn't say he... He was, uh, it doesn't use some other word other than salvation. The word it used to be made well is sozo. He was saved from his ailment. And he was able to see. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He gets out of the boat, and he encounters this, this, we call him the madman of Gadara. He's this this demon-possessed man. He's running around naked, freaking everyone out. He meets Jesus... Jesus talks to him, and the Bible says that Jesus saved him. He sozoed him. This man was delivered from demons. He received salvation, and it wasn't salvation just to have his sins forgiven and just to get to go to heaven when he died, but it was the restoration of his mind. In Luke chapter 17, uh, we read the story of the ten lepers that come to Jesus, and it says that Jesus healed the ten lepers, and the word sozo is not used. In that case, those men, they had leprosy. They met Jesus and they were healed, meaning that the leprosy that was working in their bodies stopped spreading. Jesus put a stop to the leprosy. But the effects of the leprosy that they had had over the years and years of suffering from that disease was still in their bodies. But then it tells us that one of the ten lepers came back to Jesus and fell on his knees and praised Jesus, thanking him for healing him. And that man was saved. He received salvation. He received sozo. And he was made well. He was restored. In other words, not only did the disease stop spreading, but everything that had happened to him in the years past was done away with, and his body was made completely whole. That's salvation. He didn't meet Jesus, and, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. Now you're probably only going to be around for a couple more years, but don't worry, you get to go to heaven when you die. He said, you have salvation. You have my salvation. You are not only healed, but you are restored. You are made well. And you can continue living your life. And it wasn't just Jesus that gave people this sozo salvation. In uh, Acts chapter 3, we read the story about uh, Peter and John. It says that Peter and John were going to prayer school at their church. They were running late because Peter was with them. And they, uh, <laughs> they're rushing to church, and they see this homeless guy, this crippled man who can't walk, sitting on the side of the road. And the man says to him, uh, you know, whatever he says. He says, I, you know, can I have silver or gold? You guys probably know what he says. He asks for money. And, and Peter stops. Even though they're late for church, he stops. And he says, silver and gold I have not. But such as I have, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise, pick up your bed, and walk. And it says the man, I I love this. He didn't just stand up. It says he leaped to his feet, praising God, and he was restored. And the word that's used to describe him having his, uh, his ability to walk restored to him is that Greek word sozo. They received the salvation of Jesus through Peter and Paul, And he was healed. Over and over and over again, you read through the Bible and you see that salvation isn't just your sins are forgiven. You get to have a relationship with Jesus. You may suffer throughout that relationship, but you get a relationship. And then at some point in the future, you're going to die and go to heaven. The Bible never talks about salvation in those terms. The way the Bible talks about salvation... Is being restored, being safe, being healed, being completely well, having your needs met, over and over and over again. And all those things, restoration, healing, peace, uh, clarity of mind, anything you could need from Jesus, the way the Bible tells us we receive that, is the same way we receive the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. You will be sozoed. You will have salvation. You will be made well. You will be made complete. You will be restored. It's the same exact process every time. Being healed isn't meant to be more difficult than receiving salvation. In fact, there's the story in the Gospels where... Jesus is in, is in a house. Uh, I believe the, the translation, the King James says, he was in the house. And uh, it's just completely packed. People can't get in. And so these four guys, they've come with their friend who, who can't get out of bed, and they're carrying him around in this cot. And it says that they can't get in through the front door, so they poke a hole in the roof, and they lower the guy down through the roof, which whoever's house it was, they didn't seem to mind at the time. So they ripped this hole in the roof, they lower this guy down, and Jesus sees him, and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I were the guy in the bed, or if I were one of the four guys that was carrying that guy around town, picking him up on the roof, lowering through the ceiling, going through all that hassle, clearly he's not there to have Jesus forgive his sins. Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And what's crazy is the, the Pharisees, the people that are there, they get even more outraged at that than if he had just healed the guy. Jesus says, your your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees say, who on earth can forgive sins but God? You don't have a right to do this. And Jesus responds. Jesus says, uh, he says something to the effect of, uh, "You may not, or if you don't believe that I have the power to forgive sins, then see what I'm going to do right now. He lays hands on the guy. He says, get up on your feet. You're healed. And the man gets up on his feet. Jesus uses healing to prove that he has the authority to forgive sin. We think of forgiveness of sins being a really, really easy thing and healing be a hard thing. But Jesus says healing is easy compared to having your sins forgiven. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to lift you up on your feet just so everyone here knows that I have the ability to forgive sins. I think we look at these things a little backwards. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. You will have salvation. You will have sozo. You will have restoration of mind and restoration of family and peace and wellness and healing. It all comes in the same package. Why don't we go to Mark chapter 5. I want to see how this looks in action. Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. And uh, and just to give you some background, uh, him healing the madman of Gadara is what took place right before this. So we're going to start in verse 21. And I also want to encourage you, uh, if I say something that you think is really, really great, I encourage you to write it down in your journal. But you can also say, Amen. Or like, like, that's good. Like, hallelujah. And if I say something that you don't agree with, you can keep that to yourself. But if I say something that's good, no, it's okay. It's, okay to, it's okay to say something. It's okay to let me know. You could even just like hum. You could say, mm, and I'll know. They like that. It's completely okay. Amen? There we go. Mark chapter 5. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of when Scott Stewart sits in the crowd and he, he cheers himself on. I won't do that. I'll just, I'll just hum to myself. Mark Chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat, he had to cross over again because he went to the other side, healed a guy, and then was immediately kicked out of town for performing a healing. So he comes back again by boat to the other side, and a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. That word healed right there is sozo. That she may be saved, and she will live. I want you to point out with Jairus the same pattern that we saw in Romans chapter 10. He believed something. He believed that Jesus was able to heal his daughter. He said something. He says to him, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, that she may be saved, and she will live. So he believed something, he said something, and then he did something. He went and found Jesus. He put his faith to action. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we read the words on the page and we never stop to actually think about what it's saying. Think about this woman, the condition that she was in. She had been sick for 12 years. One day, she started bleeding and she never stopped. In in their society... Uh, she she would have been an outcast for that. She wouldn't be able to really hang out with other people. She'd kind of be off on her own, uh, locked up in her own place. She's suffering through this. She goes and sees all the doctors that she can see. The doctors can't do anything. There's nothing wrong with doctors, but these doctors couldn't do anything. She spent all the money that she had trying to get better, and there, there's nothing wrong with trying to spend money to get better, but this woman spent every dollar she had, every denarius she had, and, uh, and that wasn't helping either. In fact, she had gotten worse. So she had been suffering this way for 12 years. Verse 27, When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now there's something here that I think I overlooked almost every time I read it until a few months ago. It says in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, how did this woman hear about Jesus? She had been sick for 12 years. She had been isolated for longer than Jesus had been in ministry. But someone went and visited this woman and told her about the things that Jesus was doing. It's very good for us to know what the Bible says about healing and about salvation but it's also very important for us to tell other people what the Bible says about salvation and the Bible says about healing. Our relationship with God isn't about, it's not about me and Jesus. And you know, We often say like, oh, it's, it's just me and Jesus. It's, it's not just me and Jesus. It's Jesus and this whole congregation and the congregation of the church down the street and the congregation in the other state that teaches things that we don't agree with. We're all the same family. We're all the same children of God. Whether or not we like what every other church is doing, you know, I have family, and I don't always like what they're doing, but they're still my family. I still have to see them on Thanksgiving. We go to a a, a really great church. In fact, it's it's my favorite church. That's why I come here. (laughs) There there we go. This, This is my favorite church. Amen. But even the churches that that we disagree with and even the churches that do things that we don't like, they're still our family. They're still a part of the family of God. And it's important for us to spread the truth. It's important for us to tell people what we know about God, the things that God has done in our lives. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 12, one of those two says that we overcome the devil by the word of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. We need to testify when God does things in our lives. We need to let other people know what's going on. Especially those like this woman who had been isolated for 12 years. We need to go find those people. When Terry Mize is out here, he always talks about Proverbs chapter 30, verse 19, I think, that talks about uh, what he considers his ministry going to the widows and the orphans, to the lost and the needy. There's people out there that need to hear the things that we get the privilege of hearing every single week. And if we're not the ones that go and tell them, then they're never going to know. But fortunately for this woman, someone went and told her. Someone decided that even though she was unclean and even though it probably wasn't the most pleasant thing to go spend time with her, that they were going to do it. They were going to go find her and they were going to tell her about all the miraculous things that Jesus was doing in his ministry. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch the clothes of his garment, I shall be made well. That word well right there, let me check my notes to make sure. Yes, sozo. (laughs) If I may only touch... His robe, if I may only touch his clothes, I will be saved. I will be sozo. I will have salvation. I will be made well. I will be restored. She follows the same exact pattern as J Iris. She believes something. She said something. And then she did something. In fact, she did something that was very risky for her to do. She, with this disease that wasn't supposed to be out in the public, was walking through crowds of people, pushing through them to get to Jesus. She really did put her faith to action. Verse 29, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Again, think about the context of what's taking place. Jesus gets out of a boat, and immediately a wealthy man from the synagogue comes to him and says, My daughter is at the point of death. I need you to come to my house so that she can be saved, so that she can be sozoed, so that she can be healed. So it seems like it's a pretty important thing that they should be uh, in a hurry to go see this little girl. You know, We, we read later that she's a 12-year-old girl. Uh, this 12-year-old girl is at the point of death. They need to rush through all this crowd of people to go heal her, to go save her. And as Jesus is walking, it says that he felt something behind him. He felt virtue. He felt power go out of him. And rather than saying, oh, that's nice, and then continuing to rush to the 12-year-old girl that's dying, he stops and has a full-blown conversation with this woman that has already received salvation, that has already received Sozo. His disciples, it seems like, to me at least, are like rightly perturbed about this. They're like, Jesus, no, we got to go. Everyone's touching you. Let's go heal the daughter of the rich guy who has influence, that might be a good thing for you to do, seeing as how most people don't like you. But Jesus stops. He stops because it's important for him to see this miracle that had just taken place. You know, we, we're not going to read about Jairus's daughter. I'll just tell you how it ends. She dies, and then Jesus goes and raises her from the dead, so it all turns out okay. Sometimes if we operate on God's timetable instead of our own, things still work out. So Jesus is in a hurry, but it says that he felt power go out of him, and so he stops to see what happened now if you're reading in the in the King James, it doesn't say he felt power go out of him, it says he felt virtue go out of him uh, and whenever Pastor Mike would be in here teaching he he'd share this story, and he'd always read it and say, you know and then and Jesus felt virtue go out of him he felt virtue go out of him and you know, honestly, it always kind of bugged me because virtue is like a grown-up word and power is a much easier word. Like, like virtue went out of you. I, I never knew what that meant. I was always like, no, no, power went out of him. It wasn't virtue, it was power. Like, like virtue it means like moral goodness. Moral goodness went out of Jesus. That, that never really made sense to me. So I always preferred power. Uh, and Pastor Mike would always read virtue. And so one day I decided I'm going to look up why Pastor Mike's Bible says virtue and mine says power. I'm going to try to figure this out. It's, it's a good thing to try to figure things out rather than just being bothered by things. So I looked it up and, and the Greek word that's used here is the word dunamis. Uh, it's where we get the word dynamite. And it's often translated as power. But in some cases, it's translated as a virtue. So I looked it up uh, dunamis, virtue, came out of Jesus. And what this word actually means, I wrote down the definition for you. Dunamis, power residing in a thing because of the virtue of its nature. Power residing in a thing or a person because of the virtue of its nature. In other words, when virtue went out of Jesus, it wasn't just power that went out of him, but it was power that belonged in him because of his nature. Because he was a righteous child of God, he had a right to have that power and to release that power into people that needed it. Now, here's the thing that's really, really, really cool about this word dunamis. This word is used throughout the New Testament And one of the places that we're going to flip to is Ephesians chapter 3. So why don't we go to Ephesians chapter 3 and see how Paul uses this word dunamis, this word virtue. How he talks about power that belongs in someone because they deserve for it to belong in them, because they're worthy of holding this power. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 20, and I'll remind you, the word dunamis, virtue, power, means power that resides in a thing or a person because of the virtue of its nature. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the dunamis that works in you. this verse blows me away. It blows me away because think about how Paul describes this power. Now, to him who is able to do all that you ask or think. That, that would blow me away. God is able to do everything that I ask or think. But that's not what it says. God isn't able to do all that I ask or think. He's able to do above all that I ask or think. But he does more than that. He doesn't just do above all that I ask or think. He does abundantly above all that I ask or think. But it gets even better. He doesn't just do abundantly above all that I ask or think. He does exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or think. And the reason he does that is because of the power, the dunamis, the virtue that resides in me. That same power... That raised Christ from the dead. We sing this. There's a song that says this. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me. And the person that sings that song, they didn't make that up. That's from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that Christians... It says that he, he prays repeatedly every single day... ...that Christians would understand the power that dwells in them. The power that flows through their veins. He says it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and sat Him in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion, and above every name that has been named, and above every name that hasn't even been named yet. Think about that. Jesus' name is above not only everything that has a name, but things that we haven't even come up with names for. If you discover something 20 years from now, what should we name it? Doesn't matter. Jesus has power over it. Oh, there's a new disease that's Spreading through the world. What's it called? I don't know. But Jesus has power over it. No matter what comes your way, no matter what new thing your doctor discovers, Jesus' name has power over that. And Paul prayed every single day that Christians would understand that truth. That the same power, the same dunamis, the same virtue that flew out of Jesus into that woman and healed her after 12 years of suffering, that we would understand that that virtue, that power dwells in every single one of us. Because that power can be there. And it can just sit there. And do nothing. I, I own a bounce house that sits in Chip's garage. And it sits there. And it does nothing. We just moved to Dana Point, And... I had boxes and boxes and bookshelves of books that just sat there and did nothing. And my wife made me throw most of them away because there was no reason we had them. I wasn't going to read them. I just thought it looked really cool to have them all on the shelf. She said, no, we're getting rid of those because you don't use them. If you don't use something, there's no point in you having it. You have the dunamis power of God dwelling within you. Are we going to put it to use? Or is it just going to sit there while well, we believe that salvation just means we get to go to heaven someday? Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Verse 21 To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. In other words, this worked in Jesus' generation, it worked in Paul's generation. It worked in the generations of the Middle Ages. It worked in the generations of the Reformation. And it works in your generation. And it's going to work in the next generation. It's going to work forever and ever. Because God is a God that doesn't change. And if He did these things for Old Testament saints, He'll do them for you. If He did this for that king whose name I don't remember, who wasn't very righteous in Second Kings chapter 5, He'll do it for you, His child who is righteous, who is clean, who is whole, who is saved. Because he loves you. Because he's God. Because that's his nature. And that power resides in him because of that nature. And that power resides in you because you share in that nature. Let's go to 2 Peter. I have time. 2 Peter chapter 1. I get excited when I talk about these things. A really good thing to do when you're when you 're driving to work is just preach these things to yourself just driving down the street and people will you know you could put bluetooth in your ear so people don 't think you 're crazy but but what you 're really doing is you 're preaching the gospel to yourself that'll that 'll get you excited for work second Peter. Chapter 1, we're, we're not going to read the whole, th- uh, we could read starting in verse 2, 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power, his dunamis, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That dunamis power that resides in you, it says right here, has given you everything you need to live life and to be godly. We're all alive, so I think that covers everything. Everything you need to be alive, he gives to you through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. That word virtue is not uh, dunamis, by the way. I looked it up. Verse 4. By which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having experienced the corruption that is in the world through lust. Hmm? Escaped? How is it up here? Oh, I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, so my words are slightly different. Did I say escaped? What did I say? Experience. Oh, I, sorry, I said experienced. Having escaped the corruption. Thank you, Mark. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Check that out. Through these great and precious promises, you may be a partaker through the divine nature. It says you may because most Christians choose not to. It might be out of ignorance. They don't have the knowledge. It might be out of willful disbelief. They don't want to believe these things are true. But if you have this knowledge, if you believe what the Bible says about God and what the Bible says about you, you can become a partaker in God's divine nature. That's incredible. I, don't, I, I sit around and I think about this verse and it just blows my mind. I get to be a partner. I get to have a piece of God's divine nature. We so often hear, not, not in our church, but so many Christians hear that, you know, being a Christian is about being a, a sinner who God loves in spite of all the bad things. That's not what you read in the Bible. Jesus invites you to be just like him. He says, hey, you see my divine nature? You see my virtue that just flows out of me when I'm not even paying attention and heals people? You can have a piece of that. You can partner up with that. You can have that in your life. You can be just like me. We read in John chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus actually got a lot of flack for this from the Pharisees when he said this, but he he spoke about Christians, about children of God, as if they were gods themselves. He was quoting Psalm chapter 82, where the psalmist says, do you not know, no, sorry, let me me back up. It's not the psalmist, it's God in chapter 82. Psalm 82, God says, you are gods, but because you don't live like it, because you don't believe it, you're going to die like men. Jesus quotes that in John chapter 10, teaching the disciples and telling the Pharisees that children of God share in his nature and can do the same things that he did. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus is preaching and Jesus says, the same works that I did, you can do too. And even greater works than these will you do. Because I go to my Father. Why does that work? Because we're partakers in his divine nature. We have his Holy Spirit flowing through our veins. We have his dunamis power flowing through our veins. We have access to everything that he had. As First John says, as he is now, so are we in this world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Pastor Mike's been teaching on this, or, or was teaching on this uh, for the past several weeks. He talked extensively about uh, being made in the likeness and the image of God. Uh, and, and what that meant uh, for Adam and Eve and what it means for us Christians, that, that we were made in the likeness and the image of God. Now, those, those words right there, likeness and image, they only appear together in Scripture in one other place in the entire Bible. You go through the whole Bible, you're only going to find likeness and image used together in two places. One is Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and the other one is Genesis chapter 5. I want to read this for you so that you can see what it meant to be in the likeness and image of God. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. Adam had a son, and his son was in his likeness and his image. He looked like him, and he was like him. His nature, Seth's nature, was just like Adam's nature. God had a son too. His name was Adam. And Adam was in his likeness and his image. Adam looked like him. Adam was like him because they had the same nature. God has a bunch of other children too. They're sitting in this room. You guys are in the likeness and the image of God. You look like him. And you are like him. Because you share in his nature. Some of you may have met my my son before. He runs around all this place. And, uh, you know, most of you did not know me when I was his age. Uh, but if you were to see pictures, in fact, we, we show him pictures of me when I was two. And he can't tell who it is. He thinks it's him. Because I looked just like him when I was two. Like, we... Like, everyone says, oh, he looks just like you. He looks just like me. He talks just like me. Shaney asks me to do the dishes, and I say, huh? I tell Jack to put his toys away. Huh? (laughs) We'll be driving down the street, and Shaney will be talking, and I'll be zoning out, looking over here. I'll be driving down the street with Jack, and I'll say, hey, Jack, do you want to listen to the Dino Truck song again? Huh? We're the same. Because he's my kid. It's my blood that flows through his veins. It's my nature that is within him. He is in my likeness. He is in my image. And we are in the likeness and image of God. It's his blood that flows through our veins. It's his spirit that keeps us alive. It's his nature that works in us. It's his power that flows out of us. I think a lot of these things become very simple when you start to understand these basic truths. We're we're just like God. That's what Jesus said. That's what God said. That's what the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit said. People sometimes get mad about saying things like that, but it's what the Bible says. We're just quoting the Bible. You are just like God. And if you're just like God, that means something. It means that you can do the things that Jesus did. It means that you can live the life that Jesus lived. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says that our thoughts are not His thoughts and our ways are not His ways. And we... We quote this, not we, but but Christians quote this and they say, See, we can't we can't think God's thoughts and we can't walk in his ways. If you read the verses right before it, what Isaiah is saying is, Listen up, dummies, your ways are not his ways, so get your ways more like his ways. Your thoughts aren't his thoughts, so stop thinking your stupid thoughts and start thinking his great thoughts. His thoughts are better. Your thoughts stink. That's what it means. The essence, the story of the Bible is God calling us back into his family, us being just like him yet again. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. It's like the most simple thing. But it's so, so important that we grasp it. You are a child of God. And if you're sitting in this room and you have children, you know that you don't want your children to suffer through life. You don't want your children to be sick, to be needy, to be depressed, to go without peace, to be anxious. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that if we, being evil, know how to give good things unto our children, how much more does our Father who is in heaven do good things for us? Think of the best parent, the best father that you know. It could be a real person, it could be Atticus Finch. The best, like the, the best picture of a parent that you can think of, the Bible says that compared to God, that guy's evil and he's terrible. That's how good our Heavenly Father is. And we have the privilege of being his sons and his daughters. And if we come to God with that childlike faith, understanding who we are and what God thinks of us, how much he cares for us, how on earth can we ever believe that God doesn't want the best for us? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to follow the pattern that we've seen over and over and over again in the Bible. We we're gonna we're gonna do something tonight, and every one of us, whether we're we're in need of healing or in need of anything else, or whether we're not, it would be advisable for you to continue doing this thing every single day. We're gonna follow that template that we read in the Bible. We're going to believe. the Bible says, we're going to speak what the Bible says, and then we're going to act upon what the Bible says. Because the Bible says when you do those things, when you believe, when you confess, and when you put action to your faith, that you receive, that you will be saved, you will be restored, you will be made whole. This is healing school, but For the rest of the night, it's salvation school. It's sozo school. If you're in here and you don't need healing, but maybe you need restoration in your family, the same pattern works. Being healed is no different than being saved. Being restored in your relationships is no different than being healed. Having restoration and clarity in your finances and your business is no different than receiving salvation, the forgiveness of sins. So what I want us to do is I want everyone to stand up and we're just going to